secret weird things that people do, Bill. Uh, okay. I, I would like to know if you have a secret weird thing that you do. And I'd also like to know if the listeners have a secret weird thing that they do. Now, to explain further, because that sounds fierce, not, not safe for work altogether. Um, this is a thing that I picked up from uh, another podcast I listened to. And it was basically, uh, someone proposed a question, but someone uh, proposed a scenario that everyone has weird little idiosyncrasies, like low-key, low-stakes idiosyncrasies that they do, that if others were to find out about it, they'd be like, wow, that's mental, or that's crazy. Um, and they, they label the secret weird things that people do. Um, so I would like to hear if you have any at all. Mine, so to, oh, sorry, to give a sort of idea of the scope of this. Um, yeah, mine, the context. The context. Mine is that I open bananas from the wrong end. Uh, I think it's the right end, but apparently the world thinks it's the wrong end. So I open bananas from the bit that is not attached to the three. Um, yeah. That's how I habitually open bananas. And people have spotted that before and been like, that's really weird. Um, well, that's, that's quite interesting because um, that the bit that is attached to the tree is the bottom when they're on the tree. They grow up. So you're you're holding it the way that it grows if you open it in that orientation. Wait, they grow up? What are you talking about? What? Do I not the bit know? that is attached to the tree is on the bottom when they're on the tree. Is it? And it curves out and up, yeah. So the way like we think of a bunch of bananas, they're, they're gathered together at the top. That's not the case on the tree. On the tree, they're gathered together at the bottom. No. Yeah. What? That, yeah. Hold on. I'm, I'm like 98% sure. Bananas on a tree. Bananas definitely <laughs> grow on a tree, don't they? Well, like, the whatever plant they grow on. Like, I think there might be a technical thing that it's actually a bush or something, but, you know. Stop yeah, it's a banana tree. the likes. They're all upside down. Yeah. That is... Absolute madness. Yeah. Revelation, isn't it? Wow. Okay, we could stop recording right here. This is this is as good as the content is going to get, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's nuts. Yeah. Uh, so that well that means that I'm I'm further I think I'm further vindicated in my strategy of opening bananas from the wrong end. Because the end that people usually open the bananas, you'd expect that to by default be quite strong because that's what's holding the banana to the tree. So Opening on the other end, which is weaker, would make sense. Do you want further vindication, Edgar? I would love further vindication, Phil. Thank you. The way that you open bananas is the way that noted banana experts, monkeys, open bananas. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) So bananas, so monkeys open them my way. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. That's great. Man, monkeys are shocking smart. And so am I. <laughs> That's cool. I right. always knew I liked those guys. But I'm, but I'm assuming you you open bananas from what I would class to be the wrong end. No. Oh, so you open them from my end? No. You just don't eat bananas? I cannot stand them. I think they're rank. Wow. I hate them. Do you hate bananas? I absolutely hate bananas. I think they're disgusting. Do you hate bananas just in their raw form or just anything? Like, So could you eat a banana bread, for example? Mm, wouldn't be keen on it, no. Wow. Jeez, no. bananas are great, man. No, rancid. They're the potato of the fruit world. Can't believe you think bananas are rancid. That is like, that is literally... Disgusting. Like my breakfast, well, my first breakfast is just a banana. 
It's a great way to start a day. Coffee and a banana. Anyhow, anyhow. That's... Oh, are you trying to murder me? <laughs> Wait, you gotta, you, please tell me you drink coffee. I hate coffee. Oh, you stop it, Bill. How are we even friends? <laughs> we lived together, Edgar, for a year. That's, that's absolutely bad. I can't, I, I could have sworn I would have seen you drink coffee. That's mad. No, you, you have never seen me drink coffee. I'm reasonably positive. Wow, we are so diametrically opposed when it comes to food then. Uh, that's not any, but any, 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 any. Sorry, um, I was like, oh, this will take a few minutes. We're already seven minutes into recording. Um, do you? Can you think of a secret weird thing you do, like my banana opening? I am a little bit of a fidget, and I have like certain kind of rhythms that I kind of always tap out. Like if I'm if I'm just sitting down or I'm I'm bored or whatever. As uh, enough that counts. One thing one thing I do do, and people this is one people find weird actually. You know when you're walking along. And uh, there's like a loose brick or a loose paving slab or something on the road, and you like trip over it slightly, and then you catch yourself, mm. and then you stop and you look around to see what it was. Yeah, yeah. I I don't. I just keep going. If I, if I I trip slightly, I catch myself, and I just keep walking because, like, who cares? I didn't fall over. I'm not going to gain anything by looking around to see what it was. I just ignore it. <sighs> and people people think that I'm really weird for doing that. Wow. Yeah. That's I can't imagine turning off the impulse to look around. Because no, like, about not... ten years ago, I decided just I wasn't going to do that anymore. Yeah, wow, because it's not a deliberate decision when I look around. It's a, it's an, it's an instinctual thing. It's mad. Fair play. Speaking of walking and pavements and things like that, a uh, secret weird thing that my father used to do back in the day, and he used to drive me nuts because I felt like I was being embarrassed in public, he would do this really weird thing, right, where his left, he would walk with his left hand um you know way sometimes you walk you you know when you walk you you walk with your hands in a sort of neutral position mm. you know fingers loose that sort of crack his right hand would be that but his left hand would be kind of in a in a straight palm right like fingers splayed held splayed and then he would walk kind of almost like using his left hand as a kind of paddle in the air like a canoe paddle in the air as he would walk and then so he would like do a stroke through the air with his left hand fingers splayed firm and then as he came back towards his front he would stick out his thumb and like flick it against his tie and there would be a pattern of kind of like as he would walk it was like he was keeping meter with himself as he walked it was the weirdest thing man and people used to my friends used when i was very small used to point that out and be like why is your dad so weird? And I'm like, I literally can't tell you that, lads. I don't know. It's very strange. Um, Did he do that? Was his left hand coming forward in time with his right leg or with his left leg? Because left leg would make it even weirder. I know. I, I suspect it would be his left hand would come forward with his right. Okay. Because yeah. that's actually quite hard to do if you try and like move your left hand yeah. and your left leg together. It's It's a, yeah... You'd be a it's giraffe. A, it's, it's an amusing thing to try for uh, ten seconds. So, so, so your secret weird thing that you can think of on the spot is that when you fall, you just you basically do the explosion. Me, you just don't look back. You just keep going. Well, it's, it's I, I don't actually fall over, but like if if you just like catch your your toe as you're walking along, you catch your toe on on a, a loose brick or a loose paving slab or cobblestone or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't look around. I just. It's just, you know, I've, I've gotten used to the idea that sometimes you will stumble when you're walking and I don't care. Hmm. That's not a bad one, actually. I could see that being really strange in, like, packed public places. 
Mm. Really, what the hell's that about? Um, another one for listeners to get listeners inspired as a sort of scope of these things is that my my girlfriend only uses small spoons. She does not <laughs> eat with big spoons. So that means when consuming soup, she does not use a soup spoon. She uses a teaspoon. Um, I hear. Yeah, what what do you mean I hear? It'd take forever. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I suppose it would, but that's what what she does. Uh, and the mad thing is, I didn't realize this until she until I asked her this question about like what's the secret weird thing you do, and I was my mind was blown, and now I've noticed it. I'm like I can't unsee it now. I'm like, but that's a small spoon. Stop it. Let me get you a real spoon. Uh, but that's that's the thing that she does, and she just finds big spoons uncomfortable, um, and that's her crack. So anyway, th- this was all to just kind of do a ease into the show before we start sort of crack. Uh, listeners, if you have any secret weird things, safe for work things uh that you do like low-key doesn't actually matter but a weird idiosyncr- idiosyncrasy that you have leave them in in the reddit or in youtube chat and i would i would love to hear it um from experience people have fascinating answers to this question and i, I just i'm very very curious so uh we talked last show about uh Hera the uh conlang uh the pie derived conlang opera uh composed by uh jasper charlet yes, yes. That, whose name I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing again so apologies um but as uh, so uh, i i supported the the thing on indiegogo and i supported it at such a level that uh, my name gets to be part of the language so i just thought what would be fun is for people i'm going to drop in in the show notes and for bill i'm going to drop this in chat on skype is the derivation of my name in uh, the language yeah so for those who who can't see um the derivation here uh, the basic stick is that uh we take edgar at uh, the word edgar uh we assume it exists in pie so it's something like egaros and then we take it through the sound changes in the language and we get out the other end something that sounds a bit like yara I think I'm very, very hard to pronounce that consonant out the front there. Um, and it means uh, it means something to the effect of craftsman. Because I was like, you know, artifacting, builder. He was like, what would you like the word to mean? And like, well, you know, I spend more time teaching people how to build languages and worlds. Let's make a craftsman. So that is the word for uh, craftsman. Um, or someone who crafts uh, in the language. And I think it's, it's very, very dope. Uh, and I'll leave links to the lexicon as well where you can see the official... Um, derivation all sorts of things. I think it's just it's just very fun and it was this weird sort of sense of like I don't know like I'm famous now my name is in a thing it was just very very fun <laughs> uh, that's cool so shout out to to Jasper and um, I hear that the opera uh, premiere uh, went really well and, oh great which is which is dope uh, and yeah keep keep on keeping on Jasper that is some that is a baller project and that's very very good it's very very cool and like Bill said last show it hits just about every single point that myself and Bill very much enjoy uh so yeah fair play um that's the point number one point number two uh is I would like to start a new segment on the artifacts in podcast Bill mm-hmm uh, I'm going to tentatively call this Irish accent, uh, Irish accent crimes corner, <laughs> uh, and this is where I. Every, that could be a whole podcast. It could be. It really could be. This is where every time I consume some bit of media that has a terrible Irish accent, 
I talk about it and berate it on the show. This is basically like shit fag corner, but for Irish accents. Um, and the, the for our inaugural corner, our inaugural, inaugural Irish accent crimes corner, I want to name and shame the Netflix show Frontier. Um, have you seen this? Um, with Jason Momoa about about uh, fur trading. Yes, exactly. I, yes, I have seen that. Cold Cal Drogo, as one might say. Um, the, the the joke there being that this is set in Canada. Jason Momoa is Cal Drogo. He's cold. Just so in case anyone didn't get that. Sorry, explaining jokes is not... One should not explaining explain. jokes so often makes them funnier. I am convinced of this. <laughs> well, that's fair. If you keep going, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So in, in this show, for those... For, so for, for actually, sorry. First off, this show, Frontier, is actually quite fun. I quite enjoy it. Um, I, I have some issues with it. I have issues um, too. <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of issues with it, but it's very, very entertaining. Um, if you want a show where Jason Momoa violently murders someone with an axe in every single episode, then Frontier is your man. Uh, someone or something, I would say, because I think the last episode we watched, the only thing to die was a small white rabbit at the hands of Jason Momoa. Okay, I actually there's a bit I really like in that whole segment, but we'll we'll get back to that once once we're done blasting it. <laughs> so uh, my problem here is that um, the one of the characters, a guy called Michael, <clears throat> uh, he's ostensibly meant to be Irish. He was an Irish kid, I think, living in London, who gets wheeled off to Canada and then gets embroiled in the the, the politics of the fur trade in in Canada. Um, this guy, Michael, is not played by an Irish person. Shock horror. Um, he's played by a Canadian person. And the accent is so bad. It's <laughs> it's just so off-putting. It's, it, like we said before, it's like he, he is affecting the sort of cliched, hyper-real notion that Americans have of how Irish people speak. And he's doing it to a T. Like, he's going hard left. Cana- Canadians have... I understand he's Canadian, but this is kind of a. It, I think it, it's this sort of notion of the Irish hyperreal accent had its genesis in American Hollywood. That sort of thing. Okay. Um, that's right. That's what I was referring to. Um, but yeah, he's he's going hard leprechaun all the time. And the thing that re- <laughs> that really that really true me was that he was. This is no spoilers here. Don't worry, folks. But he was on a boat. It was on the boat out to Canada, right? And he, there's an altercation on the boat. He reveals himself. He's meant to be stowaway, and the like. Our big bad for the series uh, notices him, notices him, and then so the big bad says, "Huh, where are you from, boy?" And then then he goes, "I'll show him from blah blah blah," with this terrible Irish accent. And then the big bad goes, which is so annoying. He went, "I see you. You sound like you're from the south of Ireland," and I'm like. You can't make that assertion. This guy sounds like he's out of an American's wet dream. This is not. This is not. This is not from South Ireland. And I tried to think of an. I tried to think of an analogy here, and I was thinking like, if there's any Swedish listeners here, right? This would be the effect of imagine you have some sort of uh, program set in old school Sweden, right? And then a bloke walks into a bar in Sweden back in the day, and is basically affecting like a Swedish chef vibe right <laughs> and then someone in all seriousness goes wow you must be from gothenburg and it just like it's that level of kind of like it makes 
no sense because this doesn't exist this accent is hilarious it's not based on anything and the fact that these characters very seriously try to convey this notion of like I am worldly I, I have heard these accents before they come from the south of Ireland and it's just like it's just nonsense like absolute nonsense so that one threw me completely like and there are other problems with the show like they all use modern curse words in a pre-modern time like fine whatever but Jesus, Michael's Michael's accent is just, oh, it's the worst thing ever. There you go. Irish accent crimes quarter. The first <laughs> victim on, on the chopping block is Michael from Dublin. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's pretty bad. It's, 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 it is a, it, it takes you out of it. Um, and it took me a while to get used to it and just kind of accept, okay, I'll just, you know, gloss over this. Um, Clenna's accent is pretty bad too. Oh, sorry, who's Clenna? The blonde one. Oh, his 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 girl girlfriend, non girlfriend, his, his, his girlfriend interest? at the start. Yeah, his love interest at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not great either. But do, do you know what the problem? Sure, it's really bad. But apparently, one of the actor uh, actors who who um, speak in an English accent, apparently they are Irish. I don't know them. Um, but 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 the who, cap- who's that? I don't I don't know one of them. Which the- which character? The the one with the fur, <laughs> the uh, what's what she uh, she took over from her dead husband. Oh, uh, Elizabeth Carruthers. Yeah, is she the actor that plays? She's Irish. She she's Irish. Yeah. Right. So we have an Irish person here, right? Speaking in English accent. Get the <laughs> Irish person to play the Irish people. Like, it's not difficult. You have an Irish person on set. Like, this shouldn't be hard. Oh, once I found out that, I was like, just why don't you just make her Michael's love interest? And he should be called Mihal, anyways. That's that's not actually true. But I keep referring to him as Mihal as a sort of derogatory sort of, oh, there's Mihal with a terrible accent. <sighs> there, there are a number of things I do enjoy about the show. Um... Uh, I, I'm sure you can actually tell what you know, the thing, what the, those things are, um, with the the stuff that I've been writing for the podcast recently, and the fact that a colonial company is the bad guy. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that's that's pretty clear. Um, so for anyone who hasn't seen it, the Hudson's Bay Company is kind of the 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 overarching um, antagonist, or it's, it provides the context for all the uh, antagonists. Um. And so you're you're at the bit where mild spoilers here. You're you're at the bit here where uh, Declan is a bit up north. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's and then there's an incredible sequence in that, like a genuinely brilliant piece of television, I think. Where um, I don't know if you've seen this, where the the old guy is is t- is telling a story about revenge to his granddaughter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's clear, like he knows. That there's something going on with with Jason Momoa or Declan Harp as the character's called. He knows there's something going on with, with Declan, and he's aiming the story at Declan, but he can't. Declan can't understand it because he doesn't speak the language. Mm. I, I just I think that that sequence is brilliant. I think it's it's a really really great bit of 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 writing. Yeah, but Bill, really, the best sequence is the one that either immediately follows or immediately precedes it, where Harp knifes a, a rabbit from like you know two hundred fifty <laughs> meters away. Uh, it was like it was like twenty meters. Uh, oh, I'm exaggerating for entertainment purposes, Bill. Jesus Christ. Um, um, yeah, but um, yeah, no, no, it is that that whole bit with him being lost up north is 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 very very good. Um, mm-hmm. And also, speaking of not being able to understand things, I enjoy uh, that uh, some 
indigenous languages are getting a run out yeah in the show same. which is which is really cool um, same there's quite a bit of stuff i've seen in the last while that has um uh for whatever reason specifically first nations languages in it uh i was thinking about on klondike no so this was a western um that was shot in galway and largely made in irish largely filmed in irish hmm. about uh Irish people in the Klondike Gold Rush in the late 1800s. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting to be honest. It's like these these guys, these three Irish brothers end up um, with a with a claim in the Klondike and they go there and there's like loads of Irish people in the town. So there's totally believable, historically uh, sensible and accurate reason for people to just be speaking in Irish in a okay. Western. Hmm. Um, cool. uh, and then obviously between... Irish and non-Irish speakers, they, they converse in English. But particularly in the first season, there's a lot of, um, uh, I think Tlingit is the language. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Let me check. Um, there's quite a bit of dialogue in, yeah, Tlingit or Tlingit, hmm. uh, which is your know, uh, indigenous language of uh, British Columbia and uh, bits of Alaska, I think. Um, so that's that's kind of cool. That, you know, I, I enjoy seeing the the different um uh you know, representations no i seeing the representation of the different languages yeah it's it's really fun now i i don't know enough about the languages present in frontier uh, to mm-hmm. know whether or not they are presented well uh like they may, may well be presented in uh they might be going hard leprechaun well the the Who's who's the what's the name of the, the or the the title of the the Lake Walker leader? Oh, can't, uh, can't remember. Yeah, well, like she she is First Nations. I'm pretty sure that 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 actor and Sokanon is is a is uh, First Nations as well. Sorry, I, I would yeah I would say yeah I would give the benefit of the doubt there, but like um, part of me thinks as well just because the hegemony of like Englishness, like if, it, you yeah. know, if I were to suddenly start speaking Irish, um, even though I am Irish, uh, it doesn't really mean that my Irish is like good or like accurate with regards to native yeah, speakers um because yeah people in the gaeltook would listen to me speak irish and go that sounds awful um i think he's dying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the moment is kind of stab me like, they must be speaking english <laughs> because it's just yeah my like our irish is just universally not what like oh, i hate to say actual irish but you know um you, the way they speak in the Gaelic is not the way we're taught in mm-hmm. in schools, and like most of us who speak any modicum of Irish, will do so, you know, heavily informed by the phonemes in English, um, and just yeet any of the phonemes that are really difficult to uh, to pronounce and all that sort of jazz. But so anyway, that, that's a long-winded way of saying like I would err on the side of like I suspect it's probably good and accurate, um, but you know, given the hegemony of of um, the Anglosphere, it's it's hard to make a definitive call there, you know? Yeah. Um, anyhow, thus concludes, perhaps, question mark, the first instalment of <laughs> Irish Accent Crimes Corner. Um, my hope is that this actually won't be a recurring corner and, like, I won't continuously hear terrible Irish accents, but that hope is, I think, folly. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely going to be definitely going to be bad. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that's that. Now, the, the, really quick, because now we're half an hour in. Good God, um, 
the just two super super quick things we talked last time we reviewed axioms end by lindsay ellis uh, and one of the things i was talking about a lot was that uh, first contact is difficult to do in an original way because the beats are very much i i to my mind laid out for you and most of the time i think authors just go through those beats um a couple of people um <clears throat> mentioned some books that they think do first contact in an original way. I have not read these books, so I can't vouch for it, but I just thought I'd name them out in air for anyone who's interested. Um, Licarious from the YouTube comments uh, mentions, mentions The Road Not Taken by Harry Turtledove, which is a wonderful second name. Uh, and then I was having the chats uh, with Zidnaf last night, and they mentioned that Hank Green's An Absolutely Remarkable Thing is a fun take on first contact ish i remember him saying uh in that i maybe it's first contact adjacent i again i have not read the book but um he certainly did impress upon me the fact that like the beats in absolute remarkable thing are very different very different from axiom's end so there's two books for people who want to uh have a crack at them um sure to see what they think um yeah have you read any of these bill um I have not. No, I have not. Uh, I think I have read some other Harry Turtledove. Let me just double check. Um, Mr. Turtledove. That's great. Um, well, yeah, so I have I have read a bit of another Harry Turtledove series that technically is a, uh, a first contact story, but it's kind of uh, the focus of it is a little different. Mm. Um, it is called the World War series. And it's about aliens invading the world during World War Two. I, mean, I think that would count as first contact. Yeah. Hmm. Um, it's, I, I enjoy that idea of taking a kind of slightly ridiculous concept and taking it really seriously. What was that on that? What was that ages ago, way back at the start of the podcast? You mentioned uh, Napoleonic times, but with dragons. Was that Temeraire you were talking about? That was Temeraire, yeah. Oh, I... Was it because when, because I remember, I distinctly remember you saying that there was this novel out there where, uh, like Napoleon had an, uh, an air force and that was comprised of dragons. Is that still, yeah. that's still, that's in that's temporary, yeah. God, man, that sounds like such a badass, um, setup. And then when you actually read Temeraire, Jesus, that's such a dodge book, man. <laughs> I like it. It was, it was, it was calm. It was one. what? It was calm. It was calm. soothing. It was, uh, I'm trying to come up with nice words for slow-paced and boring. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, anyhow. Um, last thing on the follow-up section before we crack into a, a bigger world building is uh, there a vet we received a very important email. Like, probably the most important email we have ever received. And uh, it would be remiss of okay. me not to read this out in entirety, unedited, uncut, unsummarized. So um, this comes from uh, a, a chap called Devin Beans Chango Reginald Bartholomew the Third Senior. Right? Oh dear, okay. Uh, it's very official. You can tell how important an email is by the amount of names a person has. Mm. Um, so uh, the message re- reads, Hello, Edgar and Bill. I just listened to the newest podcast, and I thought I would address this important issue. I am Devon Beans. Unfortunately, I am not Beans Chango. I honestly don't know how to spell Beans Chango. 
If this isn't heartbreaking enough, Beans is not my real surname. I am sorry to disappoint the many people who listen in for the sole purpose of hearing com- comically <laughs> beanly names. All jokes aside, I love the podcast and channel. Seeing a new episode of, uh, or video always makes my day. Keep up the good work. Have a great summer. Um, yeah, so there we go. We we now know that Beans Changle was not, in fact, Devon Beans. But I like that Devon Beans took the bait and decided to have uh, Bean Inflation, if you will, in their name. And the names just get more and more comical as time goes on. So thank you very much to Devon Beans Changle. Reginald Bartholomew III, uh, senior. That's that's great though. That means that we have two different beans listeners. I suspect we probably have more. Because are, are we the beansiest podcast in, in terms of our listenership, in terms of our audience? I abs- is is the Artifexian <laughs> fandom the beansiest fandom? I absolutely guarantee you, man. There is a podcast somewhere that is literally just dedicated to beans. I guarantee you, there is some bean. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, about Bean, surely, but like in terms of our audience. That's right. Yeah. So there or the, the, the Bean podcast wouldn't necessarily have beany people. Not necessarily. Ah, no. But our podcast is devoid of beans, but yeah. for the audience. We like we don't presumably don't have listeners whose names are world building. Like Exactly. It'd be absurd. That would be that's ridiculous. Not 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 like Reginald uh, De- Devon Beans Chango Reginald Bartholomew Third Senior. That's not ridiculous. That is proper. Uh, but world building as name would be ridiculous. Um, I guarantee you though, there's definitely more people called Beans um, because like Bean is a second name, and people have nicknames called Beans. I guarantee there's people who are listening right now <clears throat> who don't write in because most people like don't write in. They just listen. Like I never write into any podcasts or shows. I just listen. Uh, I guarantee there's someone... You just make them. I just make them um, on a somewhat regular schedule. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, guarantee you there is beans uh, knocking around in, in, in the audience right now. Um, so, hi, Devon Beans. Hi, Chango, Beans Chango. Uh, thanks for listening and making this segment a possibility. Yeah, so... Um, I have not released a video, unfortunately. It is days away from being finished, but I didn't make it in time for the show. As uh, the promise was on the last show, that we're just going to record at the start of the month regardless. So this main, the green room, not the green room, the writer's room, is just going to contain some of Bill's creative output and not mine. I'm sorry. So with that, Bill, uh, give us the brief overview and launch it. Uh this episode we are gonna have an update on how Yarta Yarthlin's career is going. Edgar? Yeah, I'm waiting for you to start. Oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> my dear cousin, my dealings have been busy this last while. Let me tell you of the adventures I and the Nomad have had. My first few forays as commander of the Nomad were distinguished by nothing more than the sheer joy of having a fine vessel and a crew of able hands under my command. Cutting the clouds in any craft makes one's heart sore, but the emotion I feel when it does so under my own instruction, ah, it is like no other. Shepherding regular supply runs and trade convoys is safe work, no doubt, as there lurk few bandits and pirates in the Vigal province these days. 
Such work has occupied much of my time since my last letter. Nonetheless, it was a necessary period to get to know the hands and the officers, and to test their aptitude for navigation and gunnery. I have run exercises on the batteries every morning and evening, at some personal expense, as one cannot fire so much at length under the munitions allowance given to the ships. I must provide the extra ammunition from my own coffers. Fear not, cousin dear, my finances are still in fine condition. My officers pay, some outstanding credit in my name, and some sure investments awaiting return will keep me flush. But let me relate to you the most exciting engagement I have had so far. You may have heard how the company is buying up the contracts for the recovery of bounties in many of the outlying towns and territories. A bold innovation, a fine example of the Tamar spirit. In any case, my duties now extend to hunting miscreants and lowlifes of all sorts in the southern reach of the province. My first such assignment was completed just today, a thrilling engagement that I simply must relate. Curious it was. The miscreants in question were a gang of free agents, themselves veterans of the securities and bounties trade hereabouts. Despite the new arrangements the company has undertaken, this vessel, the Haggard, has persisted in its attempts to ply its trade in breach of the new laws and treaties. Naturally, we could not allow such competition to undermine our authority, but nonetheless it was curious. The thief-takers themselves reduced to common thieves. Based on intelligence of their position, we cruised along the Lestai Valley. On the fourth day of our search, we spotted them low over the eastern horizon, no doubt having seen our vessel and trying to slip away into the glare of the rising sun. We followed in dogged pursuit, our superior craft gaining on them easily. No strangers to such activities, they dropped behind a ridge and attempted to lose us in a tangle of forested canyons. Having lost sight of our prey, we rose and kept a circle of the area, watching for any sight of them trying to slip away or any sign of encampment. I told the crew I'd award a month's wages and extra rations to the first hand to recover sight of them. Sure enough, after half a watch, they were spotted in a gorge, attempting to conceal themselves by moving slowly in the shadows of the surrounding hills. We feigned ignorance of their position until they had approached a sharp corner in the gorge, where they would be forced to navigate slowly, and then we struck. Diving quickly, we intended to board them and take both vessel and crew as prize. They opened with a well-aimed but weak battery as we drew within range, dealing some damage to our own lower battery and killing two of the crew. We had no choice but to return fire, and here my gunnery practice paid off, dear cousin. We crippled their upper battery directly, and on the second salvo sundered their vent, forcing them to the ground. Landing nearby, and trusting the vessel to the command of my mate, I personally led a detachment of marines in willing hands to their location. Their defence was half-hearted, a small crew shaken by their sudden grounding and unable to resist our superior numbers. We quickly overwhelmed them with minimal casualties on their part and no further deaths on ours. Their captain was a brave old buzzard, though fitting to her ship's name. An abesky of fine local stock and heritage, she accepted our victory with admirable stoicism and dignity. Her log reveals a long history of thrilling engagements and adventures lasting many years back. 
Had she signed up as a company agent, she could yet be working her trade, making money still and securing her future. A fine asset to the company she could have been. But the fate that awaits her now is indentiture, or whatever else the court's mercantile might decide. The Haggard was too damaged to make a worthy prize, though we salvaged its cargo and stripped it for parts and materials. Her fourteen remaining crew were bound and confined to the brig, and we shall return them to the depot in quick order. Then I must simply await confirmation of the bounty, which, with charges of banditry, unlawful operation of arms, and much more to the Haggard's name, is sure to be considerable. The hands, too, have calculated their due, and are eagerly awaiting the payout. With such valour in my report, I shall be sure to be granted an independent cruise, or perhaps even a full captaincy awaits. I do hope all is well in Mearsphere. I will visit you as soon as I can, and we shall dine upon the proceeds of my daring. Yours, Yar Teyarthlin, Lieutenant Assigned Commander, Patrol Vessel Nomad, Tamar Company. God, Yar is such an insufferable douche. <laughs> Isn't he just? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so this is this is direct follow-on from last month. Yep. Cool. That's cool. I, I um like I enjoy your hopping. A rare around. direct sequel. Exactly, and I, I enjoy your hopping around. Like it's always surprises to you know what are we going to learn about uh, Ikern um this month. But I, I I kind of enjoy the continuity. It's cool. Hmm. I feel like I need to ask less follow-up questions. Be like, hang on, also who was this again, and why was this occurring? We have all the context fresh in our mind, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I enjoyed... Do you know what, man? So, I would not describe... Please don't take this as offensive, because uh, it's not meant that way. Um, but I, I would not describe your writing as exciting. I would describe your writing as... Uh, I don't know, like, very good period writing. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly, but the middle part there, where where Yar is telling about the um, about the car chase, if you will, um, <clears throat> was was kind of it was kind of exciting. Like it, it painted some really vivid imageries, and I was kind of getting swept up in in the chase. I thought I thought that was quite uncharacteristic, almost. Cool. Or maybe I put it this way: you don't write dramatic writing. I think. Yeah, um, most of what I write is 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 not dramatic. Yeah. And this was this 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 um this telling of the car chase, uh was was quite dramatic, and I thought that was kind of cool. I guess the only other comparable thing was about hunting the Urselk. That's the only the, the specimen. That's the only thing that I, I I have written in in this setting that would be kind of sort of dramatic in any way. Yeah, I guess the 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 reason why I think that is being less dramatic would be that the Urselk are very patient, like there, like they're not um. They're not as agent-like uh, mm. in terms of the pursuit here, where you have, you know, two, yeah. two competing ships and stuff, you know. Um, yeah, I thought that was really dope. It was really cool. The sh- let, let me launch into a few points. Sure. Uh, one of the points is actually not really related at all to your writing, uh, but just a question about, like, the real world. Um, you wrote here, cutting the clouds in any craft makes one's heart sore. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about flying? Does your um, does your heart soar when you cut through the clouds on your flight out to Tenerife? Uh, I've never been to Tenerife, so I can't answer it with a high degree of specificity. <laughs> um, I'm neutral on it; it's fine. Okay, I'm not, you're, I'm not I'm not bothered by it. 
you're not terrified, nor do you think it's amazing. I like, I, I guess from a, a intellectual point of view, I think it's pretty amazing, but I don't, I don't feel strongly about it. Hmm. I think it's amazing. I don't feel it's amazing. Because hmm. I read that and I was like, if by heart soaring, you mean like palpitations and increased blood pressure, then yeah, I guess my heart does soar when I cut the <laughs> Uh, because I find flying to be one of the most stressful things. Really? I, I, man, I hate it so, so much. Like, I begrudgingly get in a plane. Um, and I've had... I, I would say that my experiences on airplanes um, have been mild, to say the best. Like, I've experienced some stormy weather. Um, I've experienced kind of... Um, what you call those things where you, where you go into land but something's not right and you need to do a quick nose up and then oh I don't know that doesn't sound pleasant at all uh, it wasn't actually and I know I'm, I, I was going to tell a story about this I might tell you off air I'm not going to relay it on air but it was that was made even more unpleasant by the uh, sort of broader context there uh, so I've had a couple of kind of unpleasant moments in planes and I've, mm. I've flown in a couple of very small planes that are very shaky and rickety but I don't think I've had, you know, I've, I've not come near to, you know, any of the sort of disasters that people can um, experience. Like, you know, an engine stops working or a bird gets hit or all sorts of jazz. But even that, even just my very mild experience of like dodgy flying, it's just, it scarred me for life. I am so terrified of flying. I sweat. I palpitate sitting there. I, yeah, it's it's the worst. So I am not what you are here with the your heart soaring when you cross your crowds it's no i just want to i want to touch terra firm at all times <laughs> but yeah so that, that was just a little um lagniap sort of point there uh you wrote here i have run exercises on the batteries ever every morning um is there anything to talk about further there i'm kind of intrigued to, to hear about what those entail like uh, is it just a case that they fire a bunch of guns off into the air um, and if so, are they not kind of like raining hellfire down on whoever might be below them? Uh, oh, well, yeah, they will be, yeah. And that's fine. No one cares. Um, like, it's... They don't do it in populated areas. <laughs> right. No. Okay. Um, what they would probably do is either drop low and then, you know, target a, a, a certain hilltop, perhaps, um, or like a, a notable a notable tree mm. if, they were, if they were doing it low. Um, or they would uh, have like target balloons that they would release from the craft, and then they would take a, a distance, a position, a certain distance from it, and and target that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it, it's you know, imagine just like flying over the middle of um, Siberia, somewhere where there isn't a lot of people, um, and and you know, you're probably not going to hit anyone on the ground. I mean, I guess it's probably similar to like the US doing weapons testing in like the desert. Yeah, 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 exactly. That type of thing, yeah. That's for sure. And um, when we talk, because again, I know very little about um, naval stuff. When we talk about batteries, like in my head, I'm thinking about cannons sticking outside of a ship. Is that mm. what is meant by batteries? Or do you have like, I don't know, is there like an archery squadron or some other crack like that? Like, what, no, what, it's more what like cannons. The, it's more like cannons. And, and the firepower of the ship would be limited to those cannons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like they, they would have small arms as well, but like the actual, the, the ship's... Would be would be um, the actual the ship's own weapons would be uh, those batteries. Maybe it's like something smaller. The way that um, uh, 
like naval ships in in the the age of sail didn't only have broadsides; they had uh, chaser cannons at the front and back as well, and they had they could have mortars and things. Um, but broadly speaking, their their main thing certainly would be that they might have a few other small things. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Surely it's Which, advantageous to have guns sticking out the front and back of a ship. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, well, yeah, they, they were they were quite important. Yeah, okay, um, or they were okay because because again, in my head, in my ignorance, sort of, I know nothing about ships. Uh, mind frame, I'm thinking like it's just you have guns down the side. I always did find it really bizarre that the ships were kind of line up facing each other's side. I'm just kind of like, why don't you just like chase them and fire into them while they're going away? Oh well, it, that that is definitely a thing. Mm. Um, as and you know, as as you said, chase them. They're called chasers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um and. The the reason for having them down the side is obviously because you can fit more. You can you can fit thirty guns down a side. You sure. can only fit two at the front or back. Um, but they they are very useful when you're being chased. That you can you can shoot out the 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 rigging and the sails of the of the ship behind you and make it easier to to outmaneuver them. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, and so I, I guess what the, again, I'm so sorry, listeners, if you're like Edgar, this is just everyone knows this about ships, but again, I know nothing about ships. Uh, I'm assuming the the exercises to run here is like getting the correct tilt of the cannons to be able to create the correct parabola in the air to have the bomb or whatever land on the target. Yeah, so that absolutely. that is the practice that is needed. That is what Goderie's practice on a ship of this vintage. Um. Both what I'm talking about here and the the naval practice that I'm I'm referring to and inspired by, um, is accuracy and speed. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, it takes quite a long time to reload a a large cannon, and it, it takes a, a team of people to do it. Um, so you need to know what you're doing, and everyone needs to understand their role, so you can do it faster. And getting off. Um, say three broadsides in ten minutes. No, that's that's way too few. Um, three broadsides in 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 two minutes. Let's say, um, versus getting off, uh, four broadsides in two minutes mm. is a significant difference in terms of the actual amount of firepower you're putting out over the course of a battle, even over a short engagement. IRL are these things like would these things have been mathematically calculated or would they just be kind of like I guess this angle will probably reach there try that whoops that's too far try again uh no the so the gunner the the gunnery officers would have had um probably formal uh understanding of of the maths involved hmm. and it was it was part of the it was part of officers training um midshipmen would have taken formal mathematical lessons from one of the other officers or from the captain himself or something. Um, That's so, mad. So that would, yeah. be, so would would a midshipman be considered like a highly skilled position? Oh yeah, it's, I mean it's it's an officer position. Uh, well, I mean, or it's a, a, certainly a cadet position. Uh, that's mad. Like a, 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 a midshipman, they they would tend to be young men, like teenagers, um, but from. Uh, moneyed or from privileged backgrounds. Yeah. Okay. So like that would be that would be seen as an education that, that they would get instead of like going off to school or whatever, or instead of going into the church or whatever. That's 
That's mad. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Um, and so then further down, uh, you mentioned uh, that the, the the ship. What the hell is the ship called again? The, the other ship is the Haggard. No, no. What's this ship called? The Nomad. The Nomad. The Nomad is mm. now engaged in hunting hunting miscreants and lowlifes of all sorts in the southern reaches of the province. Mm-hmm. So as per last week, this was the the Nomad is a scouting ship. Um, I, or a patrol what? ship was it? Yeah, I think it's a patrol vessel. Yeah. Um, so is this change of um, uh, what's the word mandate? Um, is this uh, why has this occurred, or is this just a natural thing that ships like the Nomad would do? It feels like there's been some sort of like the company has issued new directives here, and I'm trying to engage with why that is the case. If you remember two episodes ago, I don't. Okay, so that <laughs> was where I wrote the expansion of security which was the idea of the the Tamar company taking the the colonial practice oh, of yeah. their their security um contracts and applying them domestically and applying them like within the offices and within Abeski regions so this is what's happening here they have bought out the and they've they've sort of hostile take takeover of the the existing arrangements for hunting bandits um hunting criminals oh so they've 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 privatized bounty hunting well it was it was already privatized in a way like it was it was uh there wasn't a municipal thing in this region it was like the free agents would would do it or did, um, they've, they've centralized as opposed they've to centralized yeah they've centralized and, and monopolized the the kind of law enforcement analog yeah okay cool uh, and uh, the, the next thing you say afterwards you were like uh, Yara refers to it as the first assignment as being a thrilling engagement mm-hmm. I find I find that wording on Yara's part to be like like so low-key sadistic do you know um, like I, I get like it's thrilling because you're doing a thing that you wanted to do etc but like you know at the end of the day you're hunting down people um, yeah you know, be, you know, maybe they maybe they are terrible, terrible people, and they deserve to be, you know, taken out of the public sphere for the greater good or whatever. But like to describe it as thrilling is a bit weird. It'd be kind of like you know, um, I don't know, like cops or whatever, uh, saying that like they can't wait for a big car chase through, you know, suburbia because it's thrilling. Like I don't think any cop with any scruples would refer to that as thrilling. They're like that's this is a thing we have to do. Like, we don't derive pleasure out of driving really fast and chasing down people and potentially, like, you know, shunting them and hurting them or whatever. Assuming non-scrupulous cops or whatever. And referring to that as, I, I think, I don't know, I, if I was in that position, I would refer to it as kind of like, it's my civic duty to do this or whatever. Or mm. it's my, it's my, you know, it's my, uh, it's, it, comes with, it comes with the job, basically. But, you know, assigning trilling to it is just really sadistic. Yeah, I mean, but like... Civic duty is 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 an, an important point to pick up on there. It's not a civic duty; it's a commercial duty. Sure, sure. I I misspoke. I meant like it's a, it's part of it comes. No, no. I, I I'm not telling you off for that. I'm saying like that that is the the critical thing here. That it's it's not that that that's kind of the point. That it's not a civic duty. It's it's it is sadistic, as you say, but also you know this is this is a, a, a purely commercial um, uh, enterprise. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um... But geez, he could have downplayed a little bit, not been all like it's it's really thrilling hunting people and potentially killing them. God, I live for this. I get up in the morning for this, and you're like, oh, geez, calm down, yeah. Um 
the the next point I've, I have here is that you mentioned, and I, I think perhaps a new geographical location, the Lest Lestie Valley. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've mentioned that before. If we have, it's a mad coincidence because I made it up yesterday. <laughs> there you go. Anything, anything around this? Uh, does it play in any way into earlier things? Um, any uh, not really. No, it's it's not of, of any new significance or anything. It's just it's in the south of the southern office. Kind of, it will be um, if you look at the map, south east of Vicol there. Um, in in that kind of mountainous area. God, I've given myself so much work to do to co- when I continuously say I'll link the map in the show notes because I have to find the map and then link it and etc. But I will do this, listeners, for you. <laughs> Go check out the map um, if you need a, the location of that. Um, a, a, a great sentence you have here. A great sentence. I really enjoy it. Uh, Having lost sight of our prey, we rose and kept the uh, kept the circle of the area, uh, keeping for any sight of them trying to slip away. Uh, or sign of encampment um, that is cool because it smacks of like an eagle hunting like a mouse because <laughs> um, I think eagles do that don't they they, they will just, like they'll circle overhead and bide their time and once they once there's an opening they'll like dive bomb mm-hmm. so I think that was cool you were kind of really playing into like the predator prey imagery there I think that was very nicely done um, and then yeah okay so then the final the final thing or no, the penultimate thing is the captain, a brave old buzzard, uh, though fitting to her ship's name, and a besky of fine local um, stock heritage. She accepted our victory with admiral stoicism and dignity. I could be wrong again because again we do only do this once a month and it's quite sporadic. But like, part of me thinks that we've learned about a female captain before, or yeah, someone, uh, a woman who's in charge of a ship. Is this the same person? Oh no, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> Oh no, because that oh, that person was part of the Tamara company. That that yeah. lady I'm referring. Yeah, so that was that was uh, actually the captain of the Aspire, which was the the first vessel that uh, Yar served on. Ah uh, yes, yeah. As cool. a probationary officer. So so this old buzzard, um, she's a new character. We don't know anything about her. No. No. Okay. Yeah, we've we've haven't encountered her before. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, and then the final, final point is, uh, with such valour in my report, I should be sure to be granted an independent cruise, or perhaps even a full captaincy awaits. Just to bookend my point here, uh, Yar is just an insufferable douche. <laughs> we opened with he's a douche, and we should close with he's a douche. Um, those are my points. What have cool. I missed? What are broad context sort of things, Bill? So, yeah, like I said, this is actually uh, building on the last two writings. We, we heard about uh, Yari's uh, lieutenancy um, and being given command of the Nomad in the previous episode. And in the one before that, I think it was the one before that, uh, we, we learned about their, the sort of uh, re-importing of their colonial security practices and their attempt to kind of, um, as you say, uh, monopolize and centralize uh, the analog to law enforcement that they've got. Um, so th- this is just showing that in context. Now that that Yar has this command, he is engaged in in the the hunting of bounties and things. Um, I think the the kind of important things from it, uh, from my point of view, is the 
the, the court that the crew of the Haggard are, are going to be sent to is the court mercantile. Um, which I, I kind of took the idea of a court martial. That's a martial court, you know, within the within the military sphere and the military context. But this is this is a court about economics and and trade, and they they are economic criminals. They're, they're criminals because that's what the money is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the sinister thing about the, this whole context is, or the sinister thing about this whole story is, the Tamar Company have purchased the the rights here and in doing so have immediately made their competition criminals oh yeah that's right so it's the tomorrow company own the court mercantile well the, the, mm, kind of it, not exactly it, it doesn't exist independently of the of the tomorrow company it is it is their it is their intern it's internal to them so wait hang on so in purchasing the rights they have elaborate on that for me a bit more so they they have the they are the ones who are the only ones who are now allowed to to be bounty hunters in this area. So and, and they bought that they they had a lot of money and they set it up so that they were the ones who had that rights. So anyone who else who wanted to do it who was their competition is now a, a legitimate target under the system that they set up. Oh, so they that's just, right. they just bought the opportunity to make all of their competition criminal. That's right. Yeah, yeah. they monopolized. And because yeah. we're in the realm of kind of law enforcement ish, everyone else is a criminal now. Yeah, that's yeah. horrific. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I should have caught. I should have brought that up because I, uh, when you were reading through, I remember hearing court mercantile and be like, "Did he mean court martial? Like, what was that about?" But I just, I just didn't highlight it. So I, I'm sorry, I missed that one. That's okay. Um. Yeah. Anything else? Oh, another another point on on as you said the the fact that uh, Yar is kind of insufferable. Mm, um, kind of. He he is almost never actually asked anything about how his his cousin is getting on. Or oh yeah. <laughs> responded to anything his cousin has said. <laughs> um, that was actually something I considered doing for for this episode is writing writing a a letter where it is just questions. Like where the 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 actual author of the letter oh. isn't really revealing anything about themselves directly; they're just responding to another letter that we haven't seen. I think that might be an interesting kind of exercise. Yeah, definitely. That would be really fun. Be really, really fun. I mean, it would certainly lend itself to like speculation on the podcast. Um, mm. Yeah, that's that's really dope. I really like that. You should you should you should definitely explore that. But yeah, anyhow. So, uh, are we done with the insufferable Gatier? Uh, we are. We <laughs> yar. We yar. Oh god. Oh god. Oh, Jesus. it hurts so much deep down. <laughs> I-, I like to open up green room, but just a really quick reminder that next time you hear our dulcet dulcet tones, uh, we will be reviewing Red Mars. Um, just for a heads up. Links in the mm-hmm. show notes uh, if anyone wants to go read it real quick before uh, the first week of next month. So uh, just just a PSA. Um, the, the only thing, again, because we're not really, we don't have any Bank of Artifacts here this month and we, we're not reviewing the book this month. So this green room is kind of like, um, it's a bit of a free-for-all this month. I, I think you mentioned last time that you have stuff to say about Fast and the Furious. I hope you mentioned that on the air last time. It wasn't just in our private conversation. 
But either way, now would be an ample time to talk about how you feel about Fast and the Furious. The Fast and the Furious is a great film franchise. I, yeah. I'm not sure everyone would agree with that. End of episode. (laughs) (laughs) Cue the curb your enthusiasm music. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm not sure everyone would agree with that stance. What's the, again, one of the reasons why I find you just, like, eternally fascinating is that, like... Is the handsomeness. There's that obviously that goes without yeah. say, but obviously you know. Yeah, okay. Um, but it's the it's the like your interests run the gamut run the gamut from like real niche high end nerdy stuff to real kind of um, basic sort of stuff. So there's lots of judgment calls there. But like you're the type of person who could like have in one conversation like expose the virtues of like ligety, for example. But yeah, then all, love me some Ligeti. You do love some Ligeti, but then also you could turn around and immediately start talking about like the Fast and the Furious, mm-hmm. and like as adeptly handle those two topics, which I don't think most people could do. Like most people would be like, you know, oh, I know lots about Ligeti, and like I I can't tell you about Fast and Furious. I don't watch those films or whatever. But you just your just interests run the entire gamut, and it's like it's endlessly fascinating. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Anyhow, so Fast and Furious is good. Why is it, from my perspective, Fast and Furious, all of them are like, at best, like, uh, the equivalent of, like, too much carbs. Like, they make you feel really good, but they're not really nutritious at all. And if you eat too much of them, you're going to feel sick. Um, that's how I feel about the Fast and Furious movies. Mm-hmm. Why, why, do you, why do you really enjoy them? Um, so there's a couple of things that I, I, I just think... Uh, are just just plain enjoyable about them. Um, the first one is grand, like it's 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 perfectly perfectly okay film. It's uh, straightforward enough crime thriller about an undercover cop who becomes conflicted. If you've if anyone's ever seen Point Break, um, it's essentially Point Break but with cars instead of surfing. Um, it's perfectly good. Uh, the second one is fairly terrible. What occurs in the second one? I think all uh, I remember is that there is a hot pink Honda S two thousand in it. I mean, I don't know anything about cars, so I can't remember really what cars are what. Um, but there, I'm pretty sure there is a hot pink car in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's driven by by a oh by an Asian lady. Yes, that yeah. sounds right. That yeah. sounds familiar. And um, the second one is again, it's another crime thing. It takes the cop character from the first one and gives him a new kind of uh, like foil co-lead character um, and it's set in Miami and it's just it's a bit daft um, the third one did really badly at the time and it has some pretty dodgy acting in it I think there is the core of an excellent film in there there's a, there's a really interesting core to it and I mean, this is one of the points I'm going to come back to later it serves as an interesting kind of synecdoche or kind of metaphor for how the series progressed afterwards, but I'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> as it goes on, as it goes on, there's a really interesting progression over the course of the series. It starts out, as I said, just about a, um, a, 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 a crime thriller. Uh, and what they're doing, what the crime is in the first uh, installment is they're stealing uh, DVD players. Ah, uh, yeah, I remember that. And by the time you get to Fast and Furious 8, there is a chase scene involving a nuclear submarine. (laughs) 
So just just from the perspective of how it escalates from installment to installment <laughs> is it's it's hilarious. Like if like every time you watch a new one, just remember they were stealing DVD players in the first film. And the cars get more ridiculous as well. Like in the first film, they're just kind of they're decent cars. They're mm. they're kind of maybe tuned up a bit, just, but like cars that real people could have. Mm. And in the seventh one, there's a, a, a sequence involving a hypercar that costs like a couple of million. Mm. Um, so that that's a very entertaining thing to watch over the course of the series. Sure. Fundamentally. Fundamentally. Fundamentally, um, particularly in the, the latter half of what's out so far, it is a story about love and loyalty. Right. And it is notable for having a, a racially diverse cast. It's it's one of the few franchises that has as racially diverse a cast as it has, especially one that started so long ago. And hmm. it's not really a point that anyone ever brings up about it. It's just, it happens to be the case. Yeah. Largely, I think, just because of, of uh, Vin Diesel and who he wants to work with and who he's chosen to work with. Um, hmm. So th- those are all the things that I enjoy about it. Like, there, yeah, there, there is a sense in which it's it's kind of silly, but that's okay. There's nothing. There's it's it's okay for things to be stupid. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, if you're if you're going to Fast and Furious expecting fine art, then like you know, no wonder you might be uh, upset about it or whatever. But like, yeah, it's like it's like it's it's fun, mindless entertainment. Yeah, it's it's like wrestling. Wrestling is deadly. Wrestling is great. It's not smart, but it's great. Yeah, it's great fun. I, I or it's like a cartoon. It's like a Saturday morning cartoon for adults, especially the the more recent installments when it's escalated that far. It's just, you know, it's fun. It's okay for things just to be fun. Yeah, okay. So your thesis is, well, are you at the end of the thesis here? No, I, I have I have two takes on it. Two, oh, give me the takes. Give me the takes. Okay. Um, the first one is that it is a, an interesting um, cinematic analogue to games and to gaming. The way that characters progress in power over the course of an RPG um, is kind of... You can see that in um, The Fast and the Furious. In other like action franchises, I, I don't think that the escalation is as pronounced. Um, like, James Bond is roughly the same character with roughly the same abilities for 60 years. Hmm. Um but in Fast and Furious, in in two, uh, Tej is a guy who owns a garage and is good at fixing cars. And in nine, he can like calculate rocket trajectories and hack into the CIA and stuff. So he's he is he is advanced the way a a, a player character might in an RPG. And there are particular. Um, uh, parallels I think you can draw with Grand Theft Auto not just because of the cars that's part of it but it's like a fundamentally more um, uh, optimistic uh, version of, of Grand Theft Auto similarly mm. in Grand Theft Auto it starts out just being about crime and that's all you do in the first few and in the later ones in 4 and 5 you get involved in like in 4 you you do some some black books work for the in-universe analog to the CIA Mm. And in five, the the basic plot is about 
an interagency conflict between the FBI and the CIA and you get involved with military contractors and, and espionage and stuff. Mm. Over the course of the Fast and Furious franchise, it goes from stealing DVD players to being involved in, in heists in the middle. And then the more recent ones are about uh, international espionage and terrorism. So, so that's my first one. That, well, yeah, let me comment on your first take there. Um, the Do you think the leveling up, this like le- the RPG-esque leveling up thing was a deliberate choice on the creator's uh, behalf? Or do you think that they just fell into this and you're just drawing this ana- this, this analogy? I don't think it was deliberate, no, but it's it, it's there. Like, it's an interesting thing to, to think about as someone who, who enjoys games of various kinds. Hmm. Okay. Um, with this escalation of drama that the Fast and Furious thing is doing, um, do you think that means that the Fast and Furious is not long for this world? Because, like, what, are we going to get Fast and Furious in space after a while? How, how does one keep escalating? Surely there's a finite point there and they just have to call it quits. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to, to top uh, Fast 9. Um, I'm not sure where there is to go from from that that point fast but nine is the submarine crack no that's fast eight that's fast what do they do in fast nine i i don't want to spoil it for anyone it's still a reasonably recent film okay um, oh so i i again i have no idea about the fast years yeah no like fast nine came out this summer oh right um okay. and there's there's a spin-off um there's a, a spin-off film which is going to have a couple more sequels as well outside the main sequence um which like is almost into superhero territory um wow yeah but that's that's a different story so it doesn't impact directly on on um on the main the main films in in terms of the escalation i think um yeah so i i there, there will be a point where you you can't you can't take it any further um there was uh, apparently some of the executives at universal who who owned the ip um, wanted to do a Fast and Furious Jurassic Park crossover, um, what? which would be which would be incredible. It would be so so daft. Um, oh my god! I don't know whether it would work. I'd imagine Vin Diesel would be up for it. It seems like you know he's he's a cool guy and he he likes doing fun stuff. So, um, <laughs> although actually about the gaming thing, maybe maybe it is because Vin Diesel is a gamer. So maybe maybe there is an element of it. But of, I, of you seem deliberate. To, you seem to be portraying this sort of uh, idea that Vin Diesel, like, Vin Diesel, is integral to like the casting and the writing, etc. Is that the case? Oh yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he's like a, a significant producer. Oh, um, oh, I thought he was just acting in it. Oh wow. No, no, he he. So um, he was the like the co-main character in one. It was him and um, Paul Walker with with the, yeah. the two leads. Yeah. Um, and then. Paul Walker was in the second one. Vin Diesel wasn't. Um, Vin Diesel wasn't in this. Oh, he wasn't. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's not really in the third one. He makes a cameo at the very, very end of the third one, which actually ties it in to the rest of the of the, the franchise because there was no connection other than that, other than him appearing at the end. Um, and he did that for free. He did that cameo for free. Um. And his only request was that he be given rights to be involved and and to develop future sequels. Oh wow! So he yeah. he, he is a creative force in this space. Wow. Yeah, Vin Diesel is is like a really smart operator and a really like creative guy. 
and 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 in in the things he does he makes he makes kind of smart smart decisions about what he gets involved in and, and he gets involved in the things he makes i think the smartest thing he's ever done is if i recall correctly he taught judy dench how to play D D? <laughs> he did yeah which is uh which is that is that is a dope thing to be able to say um take two so say so yes that's that's my first one and, and it just occurred to me there maybe there is a, a element of of um uh, deliberation or there is a deliberate in, intention behind the, the, the gaming analogue. But anyway, take two is um, about uh, Tokyo Drift specifically, which is the third instalment. Hmm. Which, as I said before, doesn't really have that much connection to the rest of the franchise. And this was made uh, after, obviously after Too Fast, Too Furious, it's the third film, wasn't a huge success and the, the franchise like didn't do that well after Too Fast Too Furious either so this was kind of a sort of a last ditch attempt to to keep it going as I understand mm. um, and it was directed by a guy called Justin Lin who is an Asian American director mm. who's he went on to direct I think the next three uh, sequels four, five and six I'm, I'm pretty sure were, were by him okay Um. And he he's like he's done a bunch of other stuff that I've really really enjoyed, uh, and he kind of saved the the franchise. First of all, it's the first one where the the driving is actually visually interesting. In one and two, the driving sequences aren't they're not good. They're not cinematically enjoyable. It's just like stuff happens. Um, but the driving is actually really really uh, gripping on screen in in Tokyo Drift. Okay. So it was like when I was watching them, because I watched them through an order a couple of years ago, I was like, actually, that's that's a, a cool a cool development. You know, it's actually really brought me on board with this franchise, seeing that happen. Um, and the narrative, it's kind of a played out narrative. Um, and it's the kind of thing that can be done really badly. It's about a uh, an American kid who goes, who gets sent to Tokyo because he, he keeps getting in trouble um, for, for racing. Sorry, what? What? American kid keeps getting in trouble, so he's sent to Tokyo. Yeah, he's got sent to Tokyo to live with his father. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> I was like, sorry. There's, there's no uh, listeners. There's a um, um, my mother used to, and I guess mothers of that vintage used to make threats like, you know, if you don't behave, I'll ship you off the Timbuktu, um, sort of stuff. As in, like, you will be sent away to like this barren place or whatever. Uh, when Bill was uh, just said there about he was oh he was misbehaving so he said from Tokyo I was kind of like wow it's like the Tim Book Two thing except they actually followed through huh. <laughs> it's very interesting so he keeps getting in trouble for racing um for street racing and uh, like he happens one too many times and he gets sent away to live with his father who's a naval officer in Tokyo um, okay. and and there he falls into into racing and crime and stuff and it the film ends with like obviously with a climactic race. Mm. He has to beat the Yakuza guy. Um, but when he, when he arrives in Tokyo, he doesn't know anything about drifting. He's just like a street racer. And in his first drift race, he wrecks the car and he ends up in, in loads of debt to this guy. And has to, has to, has to, that's how he gets involved in crime. Um, but to beat the, the bad guy at the end, they take an old car that his dad's been like working on for years. The old chassis of a, an old, like a Ford muscle car or something. And they put uh, an... Uh, high-tuned Japanese engine into it mm. and that becomes his car and then he learns to drift. So it's this kind of 
often quite annoying and offensive thing of an, a, a white guy goes off and learns the skill in a foreign place and becomes the best at it. Mm. Um, but I, I think that's I think it's done reasonably well, and it's it's um, offset by the fact that it is by an Asian American director. Sure. Um, but so so with, with that new car that has the American body and the the Asian engine, he wins. And, and he, he defeats the bad guy at the end. Mm-hmm. And that is an interesting, as it turns out, an interesting kind of metaphor for the progression of the franchise as a whole. Because it was this failing property, and Justin Lin is failing, like, it's the most American thing ever. It's a car-based action <laughs> franchise. The most American thing ever. An Asian-American director comes and rescues it with this film, where they put an Asian engine in the, the body of the American car, and then he goes on and directs four, five, and six, and resurrects it from near death, and it becomes this huge um, franchise, huge, huge gross, makes incredible numbers, incredible box office. So, like the story mirrors what actually happened to the franchise in real life. I like that take. Yeah, that was good. That was that was a real journey, man. I really enjoyed that. I, that 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 is cool. I I I wish I'd seen the film so I could kind of more. Uh, intrinsically uh, understand what you're talking about, but like, yeah, that sounds that sounds legit. That sounds like a really good take. Yeah, I, I I recommend them. I really recommend them. They they are great fun. I see. The thing is, I don't understand. I've seen one and two for sure. Mm-hmm. The the one with Vin Diesel and Paul, the 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 green Nissan Skyline, uh, and the one in Miami with the hot pink uh, Honda S two thousand. I remember those. Um, but I remember watching them and thinking that the these films will not go on forever, because like the whole tuner car stuff, like that was at least here in Ireland it was really big in like the early two thousands, and just what every bloke couldn't wait to and and, and girls of course as well, um, but it was very much a masculine dominated field where it's like I can't wait to drive a car and then put a spoiler on it and then I'm a racer. Um, and I remember it being, I remember thinking that this is so, people are so amped about this, this sort of hype can't continue forever. And what's nuts is that like, it hasn't continued. Like you don't see people modding their cars that often anymore. At least I don't think so. Um, so that, that enthusiasm for like the street racer modded scene dipped, but then Fast and the Furious kept going. Mm. Cause I would have expected it to, to die along with it you know and i'd be in, I, i'm actually uh, motivated to go look at the dates for these films um to see whether the where the when you say the uptick comes with justin lynn i wonder where that clocks with where i think that the um the downtake in modding irl occurred um, well i remember i don't know whether it was as a reaction to to that film or as a result of it but i remember drifting being a thing around kind of 2008 um kind of the end of my secondary education it was like a, yeah. a, a, a cultural thing and you know people there'd be like videos on youtube of people drifting and so maybe maybe they went kind of i don't know which one came first but like that, that the, there was the influence there it shifted from the tuner thing to a to a drifter thing and then after that like four four is kind of a link between the two but five is just a full-on heist film yeah yeah, I guess that. Yeah, the, it seems to me that they've lost their tutor centric nature because you said they're they're dealing with hypercars and submarines later on. So yeah, um, 
Yeah. That's mad. I might actually might actually watch them. I, I well, no, I say that. I'll, I'll try and convince the captain to watch them with me because I don't really watch films on my own anymore. Mm. Um. So if I can make it a a a couple's activity, it might actually give them a blast. Um, I will warn you that most of them are are quite male gazy. I would imagine so, man. Yeah. I think. I think. Yeah. I think just uttering the words "Fast and Furious" conjures up that sort of image. So <laughs> I, I don't think the captain will go into it and be like, "Oh, I wasn't expecting this." So Fast and the Furious, it's cinema GTA, but positive instead of cynical. But positive instead because GTA is extremely cynical. It's it's fundamentally just like pessimistic and cynical and nasty. But in a good way, like I enjoy in, in an entertaining way. I I, I really enjoy the uh, satire of GTA. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, yeah, that was cool. I had nothing to do with world building, but I really enjoyed that Fast and the Furious section. <laughs> I thought it was really great. And um, so with that, it's probably end of show, isn't it? Uh, I guess so. I don't think of anything more in the show notes. No, not more in the show notes. So uh, listeners- we're going to read Red Mars for next week. We are. Uh, we are for episode. sure episode Jesus I've done that in a while <laughs> and then after that the next book I'm fairly certain I'd like it to make it the second book from Broken Earth um, sure yeah I really want to do that go by me and then also um, Zidnaf recommended a book called Jade City um, it may not fit the, the explicit goal of Artifacts in Book Club Corner but like it's a gangster film with uh, Kung Fu and um, what's it called U- Ucha uh, W-U-X-I-A. Wushu? Uh, sure. Yeah, I just can't pronounce the word. Wushu, um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's like it, it's like the Godfather meets like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, apparently. That uh, sounds dope. That, that sounds real dope. Like, real dope. Uh, so part of me is like, even if it's not very world-building centric, uh, I kind of might want to look at that for a future Artifacts and Book Club. But anyway, but that is that is like months online because first Red Mars, then Book 2 of Broken Earth and then we can discuss. Um, mm. So listeners, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I, I appreciate that this episode was it was very world building light because we had the secret weird things people do. We had the Fast and the Furious talk and then we had like caked in between the non-world building was a bit of, bit of world building. Uh, world building sandwich a world building sandwich I really hope that you enjoyed it though and it wasn't just like oh will they stop talking about unrelated nonsense (laughs) Um, but yeah so thank you so much for listening folks thanks for supporting the show over on Patreon chat thank you for being there for the premiere and I will see we will see y'all next month until next time Edgar Edgar out. out Thank you.